Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. I know many of you are still in mourning from last Sunday. Some of you are celebrating deeply internally because your team won, but wherever you're at today, I know I shouldn't have brought that up. Some of you are like, Hanson, we're like a week past that. I'm doing okay until this moment right now. Um, welcome to church. So glad you're here. So, but uh, gosh, love you guys. Love being with you every single week as we get to worship together, open God's word together. And as my wife, Lindsay, just shared, we are jumping into a new series. We're coming off the heels of our mindset series and so grateful for the word that um, Dr. John Jackson brought for us last Sunday. But we are gonna be returning to the gospel of John. And as I was praying about, Lord, what, what do you want us to focus on as we head towards Easter? Because we're just a little over a month away from celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior from the dead. And I thought, man, I, I just wanna dive back into the gospel of John and follow the journey to the cross. I wanna, I wanna look at what happens in the life of Jesus from John 13 all the way up to the crucifixion of Jesus to the moment where he's not just buried and left for dead, but he rises from the dead, the turning point of all human history. And I want us to, to have a grid, to have some context for what is happening what is happening in the final weeks of Jesus's life? If, if you were God, you're not, in case you were confused about that. If you were though, and you had just a few more days to share the most important information, the things that were most important to your heart that you knew were gonna be most important for all of your followers that you knew if you had one shot to really get through to the disciples and all of those who you loved, what would you say? What would you do? What would you talk about? What, what actions would you take? If you knew you just, you've been with these men and these women for three and a half years, they've watched you do amazing things, but now you're coming down the home stretch and you know very soon, Jesus knows very soon, he's gonna be betrayed, arrested, handed over to the authorities and he won't have a chance to talk with his disciples one-on-one -on -one again until he's raised from the dead and he sees them again face to face. But what would you say? say and I came across a sermon this past week. Actually, it was in our, in our preaching meeting uh, with me and a couple of the guys uh, on our staff, on our team, as we, as we kind of look at the scripture and say, all right, Lord, what do we want to hit on? How are we going to unpack this? And one of my favorite preachers, he was actually a guy I worked with at my former church. His name is Ben Stewart. I, I recently heard him give this amazing analogy because it's so true and it's so helpful for all of us. But he just, he said this phrase and I resonated. I think many of us do. And the phrase is simple. It just is simply this. Everyone knows Jesus, but nobody knows Jesus. Anybody resonate with that? Barna just released, Barna's a massive research group in America. They've done studies for, I don't know, feels like forever on the state of faith in America. And recently they did a poll, they did a survey of America and they realized, man, the vast majority of Americans are cool with Jesus. 
I don't know if that was the exact phrase or the question that they asked, but they're like, yeah, we like Jesus. Jesus is cool. I, I noticed recently, um, I can't remember if it was The Voice or American Idol. I don't even know which one she's on anymore, but I mean, Katy Perry has a tattoo of Jesus on her wrist. Okay, she's cool with Jesus. Justin Bieber has Jesus tatted on his rib cage. Um, Rich Froning, my guy, CrossFit, OG, right? He's got like Galatians 3.16 or 5.16 or a verse on his rib cage. Miley Cyrus just wrote a new song in which she sang, I got so high, I saw Jesus. I'm gonna let y'all sit with that for a second. Um, everybody is talking about Jesus. Jordan Peterson, he's kind of the number one public intellectual in the world right now. He's been talking about how he thinks Jesus is the highest ideal for which humanity should strive for. I mean, Taylor Swift, Eminem, Kanye, for heaven's sakes. One second he's claiming to be God, the next second he's like writing a Christian album. I don't know. Uh, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, everyone is dropping the name of Jesus and their song, their tattoo, their campaign, their book, their worldview and everybody's into Jesus from pop stars to pro athletes to politicians to regular everyday people. We're all cool with Jesus, right? But as you start to ask people about Jesus, okay, that's awesome. You're cool with Jesus. Can you, can you share with me some of his teachings? What were some of the main things he claimed to be true about the world? What, what did he claim about himself? Uh, what does it mean to be saved by faith in Christ? Tell me a little more about Jesus. Often what you will be met with if you ask those questions, maybe if I ask those questions of you, you would look at me and say, well, I don't know. I just, I know some, I know John 3.16 and I, you know, I feel like Jesus is a guy that I would like if I met him. What's happening with this? What's going on with this reality of, man, we're into Jesus, but we don't really know Jesus. And I think there's a lot of things going on with this because all of us, even me, I mean, I, I've, I went to school to talk about Jesus, okay? I've studied the Bible. I've looked at original languages. I, I know a lot about Jesus, but every time I get into the word, I'm still surprised by Jesus. I'm still like, whoa, did you say that? Did you do that? How, did I, how have I never seen that before? This is intense. Jesus, you are intense. This is amazing. There's so much about him that I'm still learning, that I'm still growing into. And I think what most of us do, if we're honest, is we take a little bit that we know about Jesus. Yes, Jesus loves me. I like that part of it. And that's true. The love of God for you is unending, unconditional, unfathomable. It's amazing, powerful. We take that, we like that, but then you get into all the other worldview things that you have, the things that you believe about the world or Jesus, and most of it, if we're honest, for most people, maybe for some of us, we just fill in the blanks. So here's what we know about Jesus. Here's what we would kind of like to be true about the world, and we'll just kind of squeeze these two things together and be like, yay, Jesus, I'm in. And what we have done, what we have actually come up with, if you don't really know the Jesus of the Bible and you just sort of use this fill in the blank model, you end up with a version of Jesus. It's a random sketch or construction of Jesus that is really just your own personal Jesus. Just my own personal Jesus, but he doesn't look or act or sound or speak like the actual Jesus in the Bible. And the problem with our own personal Jesus, 
Friends, don't miss this. The problem with our own personal Jesus is that he tends to sound a lot like us. He tends to act a lot like us. And coincidentally, he tends to agree with everything that we believe. Most conveniently, he affirms everything that we believe. And a make-believe Jesus cannot transform you. He can't contradict you. He can't challenge you because at the end of the day, he's you. He's you. Instead of, under, instead of understanding ourselves as one, as one who is made in God's image, we have flipped the script and we have made God in our image based on what we would like to be true, not based on any objective truth outside of ourself anchored in God's word. And friends, if we want to be deeply and wholly transformed and healed, it begins with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It begins with coming to God's word and seeing, wow, there's a massive gap between who I thought Jesus was and who he is and who I am and who God is calling me to be. And if I'm called to be the highest version of myself as an image bearer of God, then I need to get to know the real Jesus. And there's some areas in my life that he's gonna have to work on. He's gonna convict me about these things. He's gonna challenge me and change me. And friends, that's what it means to be God. And that's what it means for us to be a part of God's creation. Especially if we would all admit in this room, I'm not perfect. I'm broken. I have broken areas. Lord, of course I'm going to come to you and realize that I don't want a God that's just made in my image who just affirms all of what I think or feel about the world. I want to come to a God who is the God of truth and reality, and I want you to take the scales away from my eyes, please, dear God, where I am believing or looking or um, buying into a lie that's not true just so I don't have to be uncomfortable just so I don't have to change in any way because I like it just the way I am. And hear me when I say this, God loves you as you are right here. God loves you. He's not just sitting up there waiting for you to clean up your act so that he can love you one day. He loves you now, here and now, but he loves you enough to challenge you, convict you, and desire for you to become transformed into the highest image-bearing version of yourself that you are meant to be. Amen? This is what it means to follow Jesus, to take up our cross and follow him. So we are going to look today at one of my favorite passages in the entire gospel of John. It's found in John 13. And this is a story about when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And it's an amazing passage. It's, an, it's a powerful symbol of God's love for us, but it's also scandalous, and we see just how scandalous this story is because as we get into this, even Peter himself is like, whoa, Jesus, stop. Don't do that. This is not cool. You can't be the one washing our feet. We're gonna look at this together and we're gonna see why Jesus did this and why if there was one thing he could do to imprint on the minds and hearts of his followers who he was and what he was about, this is what he chose to do just before he got betrayed says this, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that 
his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, meaning he knew he was about to die. This was the reason he was born, was for this moment that was coming up. Having loved his own who were in the world. This is one of the most beautiful lines in scripture. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's a, that's a, a statement of God's love reaching all the way back to the beginning. And it's a statement of God's love reaching forward to the future. He loved the ones that were with him, that followed him. He loved everyone that he taught to, and he loved all those that he came into contact with. And he loved them to the very end, all the way to the cross. He loved them, right? Now, during supper, during the last supper, the feast of the Passover, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Jesus. He knew that. And that he had come from God and was going back to God, meaning he was about to die and return to his father. He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. Now, to really understand the context of this, to feel the weight of this, the other gospel writers, they, they talk about the Last Supper and they, they kind of hit it from some different angles. And I want to look right now at Luke 22 and I, I want to start, uh, Pietro, I'm actually going to start in verse 24. I'm going to skip the, the first two verses there. I want to look at Luke 22, verse 24. So, so just as Jesus is about to give this ultimate act of humility, of servanthood, of washing their feet. I want you to catch the conversation that is happening with the disciples just before that. Here's what's going on. Verse 24, a dispute, an argument arose among them, that's the disciples, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. I am the greatest. Which of them was going to be the greatest? I mean, they are literally arguing over, uh, Jesus, I want to be the vice president. You know, I want this seat in your cabinet, in your kingdom, in the age to come. You know, Thomas, I'm pretty sure he's got a doubting heart anyways. He just deserves to be like maybe the secretary of the interior. I'm the greatest. I'm the vice president. Maybe I should be in charge of foreign affairs. They are jockeying for position in Jesus's future kingdom. And Jesus is just, I imagine, just shaking his head like they don't get it. They still don't get it yet. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, the kings of Rome, the kings of this world, they, they exercise their authority. They lord their authority over them. And those who exercise authority over them, they call themselves benefactors. They're like, yeah, I'm the man. I'm the woman. I'm, I'm the one who's got all the power. You all are serving me uh, because I have authority over you but you are not to be like that. You're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? He says, of course, according to the things of this world, according to the systems of power in this world, whoever is seated at the table of honor 
who is being waited upon by servers and busboys and busgirls and servants and cooks and chefs, whoever is serving those at the table according to the nature of the world, they're the greater ones. They're the ones with the authority and the power. But I am among you, he says, as one who serves. Jesus is like, I'm the greatest one who has ever lived. I am God himself in human flesh. And you wanna know what real greatness is? You wanna know what the height of greatness is? You wanna know what the greatest human who is God in the flesh, the God man, Jesus Christ, you wanna know what he would do if he was here right now? Well, I'll show you. I'm among you as one who serves. You have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom. I'm giving you a kingdom just as my father confers one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So yes, you are going to have authority in the days to come, but friends, the authority that Jesus gives, the greatness that Jesus gives, it is the upside down kingdom. He says true greatness is serving others in a way that actually leads to their greatness. True greatness is serving others in a way that lifts everyone around you up. True greatness is humility, choosing to go low because you love others enough to say, I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about my name. I don't care about anything that has to do with me being served or me getting the benefits. True greatness says I'm getting on my knees and I'm washing your feet for your good. And the amazing thing is this. Some of the greatest minds in leadership, some of the greatest leaders in the history of the world have realized, wow, th this is true. If you want to have influence, if you actually want to have a, a world-changing um, world mantle on your life, serve everyone around you. Work for their good. Work for the good of your spouse. Work for the good of your children. Work for the good of your employees. Serve those around you. Lift them up. And in some wild, you know, kingdom, kingdom up, world down system way of thinking, everything begins to shift and there is health and beauty and glory that begins to come out of your life and impact everybody around you. People are actually drawn to people like that. It's amazing. And here the disciples are having the most insane argument in the history of the world. <laughs> Fighting, jockeying for position over who's gonna be the greatest in God's kingdom. And Jesus just quietly, I imagine him smiling. I mean, he's like, oh, you dumb disciples. You don't get everything that I've done up to this point, whether it was walking on water, healing the lame, the blind, the sick, casting out demons, all of it is to serve you. All of it is to serve the entire world. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. The reason my entire ministry, the crescendo of his entire ministry is this very moment. This is the last moment he gets with them before he's betrayed, arrested, and sent off to trial. 
And he decides as his last act, his last statement to those that he loves, he decides to wrap a towel around his waist as they're arguing over who gets to be the vice president, who gets to sit on his right or left in the kingdom to come. He wipes, he wraps a towel around his waist. He fills a basin with water. He gets on his knees and he begins to wash Peter's feet. the God of the universe, the one who was in the beginning with God. That's what John 1 says. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That's Jesus Christ in the flesh. The one who holds all things together by the word of his power. The one who spoke humanity and the stars and the cosmos into existence says, I have all power and all authority. My father just gave it to me. What am I gonna do with this power, with this authority, with this greatness, with this unbelievable mantle of heaven on my life? What's the last act that I'm gonna do to imprint on your hearts and minds of how you're supposed to treat one another and how you're supposed to live in this life? What can I possibly do that would shock you so deeply and imprint itself on your heart so deeply that you will never forget it? Got it. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to wash your feet. That's what I'm going to do. Gets down to wash their feet. And Peter, I, I love Peter. He says what everybody's thinking, but he's the only one, you know, dumb enough to say it. He's shocked. He's appalled. He understands what's happening right here. He goes, stop, do not wash my feet. You see, in the culture in that day and time, it was actually illegal. Foot washing was so dirty and shameful in a, in a culture where everyone just had sandals and there were no cars and you just walked from town to town through an arid, dusty desert climate and all the roads were filled with, you know, all the leftovers from animals and just fill in the blank and all day long you've been walking and the feet were the most disgusting part of every person's body 2,000 years ago. Probably still true today. Amen, somebody. We won't go too far down that road, but it's just true. And Peter's like, look, it's illegal for us to even force one of our servants to do this. They have to voluntarily do it as a part of their job. They, they won't get paid for doing it if they don't do it, but we can't force them to do it. It's so gross. And here Jesus voluntarily does it. The rabbi the one they know to be Messiah, the God of the universe himself, voluntarily gets on his knees and begins to wash their feet. <clears throat> it would imprint upon them so deeply in their souls a lesson that they would never forget. Jesus is about to die on a cross for the sins of the world. He is about to ascend to the heights of heaven, but first he's going to descend to the depths of betrayal and persecution and torture and death and hell where he's going to conquer sin, death, and Satan. Then God is going to raise him from the dead when he goes as low as he can possibly go because he loves you. And from that place, God's going to raise him up and seat him at the right hand in the throne room of heaven and say, that's my boy. There he is. 
That's what this whole thing was about. Jesus Christ is about to pull off the greatest victory in the history of the world by being captured, tortured, oppressed, and murdered. That's his strategy. Okay, I know how I'm going to win. I know how I'm going to win this one. I'm going to be betrayed, captured, tortured, oppressed, and murdered. Winning. Hashtag winning. Hashtag blessed. It cuts against everything we know. It cuts against the entire grain of human culture and human existence. And here I am thinking about this, meditating on this moment. And the one thing that just, just hits you in the face when you read John 13, you would almost think, man, John's probably going to leave this out of the story. He, he probably doesn't want to include this part in the story, but he just puts it in there over and over and over again, is the fact that Judas is going to betray him. Jesus washed Judas's feet. Hello. Jesus washed Judas's feet. How do you betray Jesus? I thought I wrestled over that. I mean, think about this. Judas, okay? <laughs> Judas, along with the 12 and the other men and women who were following Jesus, the inner circle, Judas had the greatest pastor in the history of the world, Jesus Christ. He had the greatest preacher teacher in the history of the world, God himself, Jesus Christ. He saw every miracle firsthand. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus empower Peter to walk on water. He saw Jesus calm the storm. He saw Jesus cast demons out of people, heal people, open blind eyes, deaf ears, cleanse leprosy. He saw people, he saw Jesus touch the lame man's legs and he watched the guy walk again. He saw every miracle in the book, every miracle imaginable. He had a first row, front row ticket to the most unbelievable show in history, if you will. How do you get to a point where you, and he, and he just washed your feet. How do you get to a point where you now betray him? How are you the guy that turns your back on him? And it struck me, and here's what, friends, here's what, here's what I want you to think about. Here's what I want you to consider and examine in your own heart. I just, I just read it a couple verses ago. It says this, um, Jesus loved his own who are in the world. He loved them to the end. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. What did he put into the heart? What idea did he drop down into Judas's heart? He put this thought in there. This idea that, yeah, Judas, this guy isn't your guy. He's not your guy. You're looking for a king, Judas. You need a political leader. The Messiah is not the type of guy who would wash someone's feet. That's disgusting. That's below him. This is not your guy, Judas. Judas was a zealot, which means he was a part of a, an underground political, uh, a, um, 
a radical political movement in Judaism that was seeking to assassinate Roman authorities. They were trained to assassinate Romans. They thought the best way to overthrow Rome was through violence and through um, political manipulation and through rallying the people to stand up and fight, okay? And when Judas saw Jesus get on his knees and wash Peter's feet, it was a tipping point for Judas where he began to realize, nope, he's not the guy I'm looking for. Everything else up until that moment had just been like, yep, yep, yep. Oh my gosh, he did that. He did that. Have you heard him teach? This is amazing. Everyone's going to listen to him. Everyone's going to follow him. This guy is amazing, unbelievable. He's our guy. And Judas is like, yes, 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 yes. No, not him. He's over here trying to be the servant of all. He's over here trying to lay down his life. He's talking about laying down his life for everybody. What is this guy talking about? I need him to rise up. And there were two little doors that were open in Judas's heart where the enemy could just drop some ideas of betrayal in. The first was greed. We know from the gospel of John that Judas was greedy. It says he was in charge of the money box and he would often help himself to the donations that were given to the ministry of Jesus. He had greed in his heart. The second one was because he was a zealot, he was hyper-focused on finding a leader, a messianic leader who could overthrow Rome. And as soon as he realized, wow, I have an opportunity to betray this guy for 30 pieces of silver, He's clearly not the political powerhouse that I was hoping he would be. Might as well make a little cash on this deal. I'll, I'll betray him for 30 pieces of silver, which was the payment for a common servant in that day to purchase a servant or a slave in that day. Sure, I'll make a little money on the side. I'll get myself out of this entire situation. Uh, easy, done, I'm out. The devil found an opening in Judas's heart because Judas knew some about Jesus, but he filled in all the blanks with his own agenda. He filled in all the blanks with what he wanted Jesus to be. He filled in the blanks with, huh, I need this and this and this and this from Jesus. And he created this idea of the Messiah, of Jesus himself in his own image. And instead of submitting and surrendering to the true image of God that was Jesus Christ and saying, wow, the way forward is not through domination and violence. It's through going low and serving and loving and washing people's feet. I need to change. Jesus doesn't need to change. It's me who is wrong, not Jesus. And friends, I'll close with this because this might be the most important application for all of us. In a world of counterfeit love, in a world that says, here's what true love is. It's a feeling. It's a feeling that that person that I fall in love with, that I love, they're going to give me everything I need. They're going to fill the gaps and the holes in my life. Uh, until I get that person, I'm going to be unfulfilled. But once I find them, they're going to meet all of my deepest needs and longings in my heart. I'm, I need that person to fulfill me. 
Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and he goes, no, Christian love is not like that. Christian love is a love that kneels down and serves and says, I want to, I want to lean in and give towards you becoming all you're meant to be. I want to lean in and serve you in order for you to become the highest of who God has made and created and called you to be. I'll close with this and the keys can come out and then we're gonna celebrate baptisms today. When I asked my wife, Lindsay, to marry me, um, I'll never forget this moment. First, she said, yes, praise God. After she said, yes, um, I, I decided as an act of just love and symbolism and, and, a, and a way to show my commitment to her for the rest of my life, um, I washed her feet. And it was a way of me declaring to her before we were even married that the way I want to love you the rest of my life, and I may do this imperfectly, I will do this imperfectly, but it's to serve you. That's why I'm here. I'm not here just to take from you. I'm not here just so you give me what I want and what I need. The call of my life as your husband, as a follower of Christ, is actually to lay my life down for you and to make sure you become who you're called to be. That's what I'm called to do as a husband, right? Now, I'll never forget, you know, nine, 10 months later, after we got married, we're out on our honeymoon. We went to Breckenridge for our honeymoon, went skiing uh, for our, our honeymoon in Breckenridge. And guys, I mean, I'm ashamed to say it, but like day two of our marriage, we got into the most epic fight imaginable. <laughs> we're out to dinner. I mean, we, I mean, literally, we had to stop talking to each other over dinner. We were so mad at each other. We, we didn't, I don't even think we got our food. We left before our food came. I think I, I'm pretty sure I paid. I definitely paid. I'm a believer. I'm a pastor. I paid for sure. Um, and, I mean, stormed out of the restaurant. You know, we went down to our, our car and, you know, we're driving home in silence. We're still kind of yelling, snapping at each other. And we got to a stop sign. I really went for it. I said something just, man, took her over the edge. She got out. It's pouring snow in Breckenridge. It's like 18 degrees outside. And she's walking down the street. She's like, I'll see you later. I'm like, wow, shortest marriage in history, two days. It's over, it's done. That was amazing. Um, and I'm like rolling the window down, get back in the car. What, 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 what is happening? You know, eventually she got back in, then she kicked me out of the car and I had to walk home. I didn't tell that part in the first service. They were like, what happened? Did you all stay together? I'm like, yes, we're here. We're married. Of course we stayed together. Forgot to finish the story in the first service, but here's why I say that because the reality of self-giving love the reality of a God who gets down and washes our feet through thick and thin, the reality of loving, of serving, of showing up again through betrayal, through misunderstanding, through hardship, through anger, through pain, the reality of laying down your life for the good of another over and over and over again for a lifetime, it's a form of death. It's a form of dying to yourself. It's a form of saying, Lord, I'm, I'm not gonna do this perfectly or well. And here we are two days in and yeah, I may have washed her feet nine months ago, but dang, I'm not washing her feet very well right now. I'm making her walk with her cold feet through the snow. Lord, help me. 
Grow me, change me, transform me from the inside out. My heart is not just to come to you and pretend that I need you to do, I need you to be who I want you to be. I wanna know the real Jesus. I wanna love the real Jesus and I wanna follow the real Jesus and I want you to speak into my life, convict me, change me and transform me in the deepest way possible. And friends, we are called to serve and to love and to lay down our lives in this way. Jesus himself said, I've given you an example. I want you to treat others in this way. And right after that, Judas left, betrayed him. Jesus was arrested. And the story just gets better from there. So come back next week. Friends, we're about to celebrate communion and baptism to close our service. If you have a communion cup, you can get that out now. If you don't have a communion cup, you can find those just outside the doors of the sanctuary. You can grab communion. And as you take communion, I want you to think about this. The reason Peter didn't want Jesus to wash his feet is because his feet were the dirtiest, most shameful parts of himself. Oftentimes we wanna keep Jesus away from the, the deepest, darkest, most shameful parts of ourselves. And Jesus said to Peter, if I don't wash your feet, if you don't let me cleanse you here, the place you're most ashamed of, the place you don't want me to see, if you don't let me enter into your life here, you have no part with me. And Peter goes, well, fine, wash my feet, my head, my hands, everything, wash it all, Lord. He goes, no, I just, I just need to do your feet, Peter. <laughs> Gotta wash your feet. And the truth is this, as you come to this moment of communion and you reflect on the cross and Jesus's death for you on the cross and his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, as you reflect on these things, I want you to receive the forgiveness, the cleansing and the love of God for even the areas of your life that you are most ashamed of. Because that's where Jesus wants to cleanse you and set you free. Let's pray and then... We'll take communion and we'll celebrate baptisms together. Lord, we thank you for the cross. Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you're for us. Lord, we thank you that you knelt down and you still kneel down today and you wash our feet and you take the worst of us and you cleanse it in Jesus' name. Let's take communion together now. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.